What can we do to prepare for climate disaster? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Climate-fueled floods, fires, droughts, and hurricanes are on the rise. As severe weather hammers our cities and devastates our wilderness, who will pay to shore up infrastructure and rebuild communities? In her book, Building a Resilient Tomorrow, How to Prepare for the Coming Climate Disruption, Alice Hill warns that the consequences of failing to prepare for further global warming will be staggering. Unfortunately, the events are occurring so quickly and we're going to see storm surge uh, greater on the east coast more intense hurricanes on the west coast sea level rise causing erosion that even if people don't choose to retreat things are just going to fall into the sea on today's program we'll talk about managing the costs and consequences of the growing climate threat my guests on the climate one stage are alice hill senior fellow for climate change policy at the council on foreign relations and Janet Ruiz, Communications Director at the Insurance Information Institute. Joining us from Washington, D.C., is Sherry Goodman, Senior Strategist at the Center for Climate Security and former Deputy Undersecretary of Defense in the Clinton administration. During the Obama administration, Alice Hill was one of the first senior officials to look at resilience policy. She admits that it was a job that nobody wanted. Well, it was the job of looking at whether the Department of Homeland Security, this huge, sprawling security agency, essentially one of the largest law enforcement agencies uh, there is, whether that conglomeration, born out of the events of 9-11, a anti-terrorism mission, needed to care about climate change in 2009. And the reason for that is because President Obama had signed an executive order requiring all agencies to plan for climate change, sustainability, as well as adaptation. I was the new kid. Uh, I just joined the department. And at that time, and there's still probably a little bit of truth to this right now, Climate change was not viewed, uh, working on climate change was not viewed as a career enhancer. Uh, It was something, so I recall that the uh, other leaders within the department sort of leaned back and they weren't volunteering. So somebody said, oh, she's new, give it to her. And uh, that's how I embarked on climate change. And just as you, I had that moment where I realized it affects everything and that there really is no more important issue that I could spend my time on. And so what was the process of, of sort of persuasion, conversion, awakening that you saw, you know, in that time going to people where they kind of, you, you know, tell us about sort of seeing the light bulb gone or did it never go on for some people? Well, at the department, which has Coast Guard, FEMA, TSA, uh, of course, all the immigration agencies there. So uh, it's looking at a whole host of missions The question that we asked, we assembled a task force. We copied work from the Department of Navy. They had done a task force on climate change. And uh, looking back on it, probably wasn't uh, a very savvy way to phrase it, but our task force did just say, we need to answer the basic question, does this department need to care right now, given this whole host of other missions that we're responsible for? 
And so we pulled in scientists from across the federal government. At that time, there were still many scientists within the federal government, uh, as well as national security experts, including Sherry. Uh, she helped us uh, with our understanding of the risks. We worked together across agency, all these different components. And collectively, we each had an aha moment where we said, this affects everything. We need to care deeply. We need to plan for it. We need to consider it, account for it, and get ready. Sherry Goodman, you perhaps even further were involved in connecting uh, environment and national security, things that were considered in, in different realms. So tell us about that kind of reframing. I believe it was 20 years ago or more where there was kind of this connection between environment actually as a national security issue. Well, thank you and uh, welcome. It's a pleasure to join you all remotely. I wish I were there in person. Uh, back in 1993, I became the first Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Environmental Security. And I actually spent a lot of time in California in that era because we were closing a lot of military bases. Uh, and so we had to clean them up responsibly. And that was a big commitment of President Clinton at the time was um, to fast track the cleanup at the many military bases, particularly uh, in the Bay Area from former Naval Air Station Alameda to the Presidio, Treasure Island, and many others uh, now that are now important lifelines uh, for economic and social and community activity in the area. In that era, at the end of the Cold War, we were trying to understand the connections between global environmental change and national security. Uh, everything from helping the former Soviet Union and Russia denuclearize in a responsible way uh, to understanding how changes in the ozone hole through the Montreal Protocol and changes we had to make uh, would affect military institutions, which actually became engines of finding the new technologies that have allowed us to find substitutes for ozone-depleting chemicals. So those were some of the issues, as well as global conservation issues, uh, many, some militaries around the world are responsible for conserving lands. In fact, uh, the United States military has uh, many islands of nature among many of its bases now. Think of Camp Pendleton in Southern California, which is the uh, largest stretch of green space you'll find between Los Angeles and San Diego. And that's because it's been protected from development and now harbors uh, many endangered species and important ecosystems. So that, in many ways, was the first chapter of connecting environment to security issues. Uh, the next chapter came um, in the 2000s uh, when we began to understand that climate change could impact security and that there were national security implications to climate change. And that, in 2007, uh, I formed a, a military advisory board of retired senior military leaders working with the Center for Naval Analysis, a respected think tank uh, in Washington. And we released in 2007 our first report on national security and the threat of climate change, where we characterized climate change as a threat multiplier for instability in fragile regions of the world. We now know, of course, that it's not only in fragile regions, but it's right here at home, where Alice has written now a very important book uh, connecting the dots between climate change, resilience, and our homeland. 
Janet Rees, uh, the insurance industry has been out front because it you know, looks at data and uh, kind of early on in this. When did the industry really realize like, oh, this is something that's going to affect us and, and really put some resources into, we got we to gotta understand this? Well, risk is what the insurance industry <laughs> is all about, right? So we're always looking at risk. We're always looking at how to manage it. Uh, you know, we're one of the financial stabilizers of the economy because when we have catastrophes, uh, that's what we're preparing people for. We're putting money in reserves and then paying claims and helping people recover. Um, but I like the focus now on resilience because it's even a little broader than that. So you asked me, you know, when did the insurance industry start paying attention? Well, I think it's always been part of what we do. You know, it used to be that cities like San Francisco, the whole town would burn down or Chicago, et cetera. So uh, it wasn't just the insurance industry, but the insurance industry had a big part in stabilizing how we manage urban fires, floods, et cetera. But, you know, we are seeing uh, changes in the climate uh, you know, you can't deny that. And the other part of it is we also now have a lot better technology to collect data and then process it. So as an industry, we've always been huge data collectors, right? Because we, we know where people live. We know what their jobs are. You know, we have all this data. Uh, but now we're able to uh, manage it quite a bit better. And I would say... Uh, the modeling uh, for insurance for like flood and, and hurricane probably really started getting more sophisticated in the 90s mm -hmm. um, after Hurricane Andrew. And so it's it began with hurricane was really the, the one we looked at first. And as we've gone along, we've added earthquake, flood, um, wildfire is probably the most recent one that we've uh, been collecting data and really been able to model as an industry. And wildfires have really been the breakthrough climate story of the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. and, and Alice Hill really, uh, the, you know, the state has been rocked by the, the couple of years of, of tragic, devastating wildfires. A lot of people didn't see this coming, but you said California should have seen this coming because you looked at it when you were in the White House. Tell us what you saw from Washington, D.C., looking at California's wildfire future. When I was in the White House, I had spent 24 years uh, in Los Angeles. I knew that wildfire was a risk, just basically actually from my own home. Uh, I'll tell you a little story that uh, when California started mapping its wildfire risk, my husband, this was maybe 2008 or uh, seven, we got a notice from our small town saying, we will not defend your home if there's a wildfire. You are an extreme hazard area. News to me, I, of course, thought, well, I hope they didn't tell us our insurance company that. Um, <laughs> so I knew that wildfire was a growing risk. And then as I became more educated about uh, what was occurring and the drought risk, uh, the hotter temperatures, and that we were seeing uh, fires, as we saw in Colorado Springs, that just uh, were igniting entire subdivisions where they were burned within five hours. You talk to the researchers, they say, we don't really know fully why that thing burned so quickly. And then we convened uh, 
the fire chiefs from across the na nation. You may not appreciate this, but more wildfires occur on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. And what's really happening in the United States is just as we all want to live along the coasts, turns out a lot of us also want to live in the mountains and the wildlands, right up next to the wildlands or right in the middle of them. Uh, and we are developing at a very rapid rate, uh, and this is particularly true in California, homes in these areas, but those are combining with fire risk, particularly in the West. And then I learned from the fire chiefs that they know how to fight urban fires, but really have had deep expertise in that. And they know how to fight wildland fires, because we do that. But that model doesn't fit for this wildland-urban interface. And the story I remember is you have these mutual aid agreements. So California will call Oregon and say, hey, can you send a bunch of firefighters down here? We had a uh, fire in our big forest out here. Sure, we'll be there in 24 hours. 24 hours, the subdivisions are all gone. That model doesn't work anymore. So it's clear, and they at that time requested training. They wanted more understanding of what was at risk. The research has improved, but certainly there's a lot more to learn. So California should have been better prepared than they, that we should have known. That's well, what you're saying. I think that this is not, it was predicted. In fact, all of the climate events that we're experiencing, uh, the scientists have been telling us. So it's really a matter of our leadership having their aha moments and realizing this is a big risk, but we have a lot of political debate here where there's some people think it's a question of belief whether these impacts are occurring, even though they're well documented. So that, that affects the decision making. And there's a lot of discounting of the risk because it's so unfamiliar. We tend to judge risk on, based on what we've experienced or someone close to us has experienced. By definition, <laughs> Climate change brings ever more extreme events. So don't be surprised when you hear after every event, I've never heard of such a thing. I've never seen it in my community. That's what happens with climate change. So we're working against those cognitive biases, the political debate, uh, and just general discounting of risk uh, when it's on this seems far off and unlikely to affect us. We're all optimists. We believe it won't affect us. And uh, FEMA maps and insurance premiums, all that's rear looking. It's not looking at, exactly. at, at the road in front of us. Uh, uh, Sherry Goodman, I want to ask you uh, about the Norfolk Naval Base. You know, what's going on in terms of the risk? And they're already kind of preparing and, and responding to climate change that's here and now at the largest naval base in the world. Well, let me start with uh, picking up on, on that question by picking up where, where Alice left off, because, you know, our military leaders, when we form the Military Advisory Board and military leaders in general, are trained to anticipate risk. That's what we always, you know, any threat that we look at around the world, whether it's nuclear, terrorists, chemical, biological, the next health pandemic, it's a risk. So what do we plan and prepare for? And, you know, we said in general, our first chairman of the military advisory board, General Sullivan, said, you know, if we wait for 100 percent certainty, we know something bad is going to happen on the battlefield. OK, and that's basically how we have to think about climate risk. All of our military leaders have had their aha moments, too, and they've become to realize many of them started as climate skeptics, but now they realize that climate is one of the most fundamental risks uh, which we as a society and which our military and our leadership, our national leadership needs to prepare. 
So at Norfolk Naval Base to take, uh, and at Norfolk in general, to take an example, we have the largest complex of military facilities in the United States, perhaps in the world. We've got naval shipyards. We have a naval base. We have a NATO command. We have Coast Guard uh, bases and Army and Navy and Marine Corps and Air Force. We have a major air combat command. And we have a NASA uh, uh, facility as well. So we have a large complex of facilities in an area that where the seas are rising uh, in southern Virginia, seas are rising, storm surges coming in. The coast is naturally naturally sinking anyway. You have coastal inundation, storm surge, and subsidence of the land across the East Coast. So today, already in Norfolk, you have sunny day flooding that happens on a regular basis. Sunny day flooding, i.e. the skies can be blue uh, and there's flooding in the streets and people can't get from their home in one part of the community onto the base or wherever they might be working. So this is happening now on a daily basis. So what's, what's, what is the community doing about it? Well, the, the shipyard is trying to raise the seawall so they can continue to do the important work of making some of our crit- – we make some of our most critical military capability there. We, we have dry docks for nuclear submarines and for aircraft carriers, uh, and these are some of the most fundamental tools in the military toolkit, and there are not many places. Uh, there's one East Coast shipyard. There's one West Coast shipyard. So we have to reinforce the seawalls. We have to raise the dry docks. We have to change how we manage the critical infrastructure. We have to reinforce in many ways, and we have to also think about natural infrastructure. But this is not simply for the military. It has to be done with the community. There are actually 17 local communities there. It's not just one big city. So it's a very complex task. Now, what's happening to the military now on a regular basis, whenever there's an extreme storm coming up the East Coast, and there are many more of them now, many more intense, we actually have to send parts of the fleet out to sea, the ships and the aircraft, to protect them from the storm. So we're actually sending our, in many ways, our own capability out to sea to protect them from uh, the local threats the homeland threats. It's a very complex and unusual challenge, but it shows you the nature of what we're dealing with here as we try to reinforce and make more resilient our our military capabilities at the ground military ground zero for climate change. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about protecting our homes and communities from climate-fueled disasters. Coming up, it's all about being a good neighbor. Yes, I'm responsible for my home, and yes, I live in a firewise community. But if I'm the only home that's fire-resistant, I have a less chance of surviving a wildfire. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about building ever more resilient communities in the face of climate change. My guests are Sherry Goodman of the Center for Climate and Security, Janet Ruiz of the Insurance Information Institute, and Alice Hill, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and co-author of Building a Resilient Tomorrow, How to Prepare for the Coming Climate Disruption. 
As the number and intensity of climate change disasters rise, so does the cost of restoring the homes that have been lost. Insurance rates are on the increase and policies are getting canceled. Elected officials are pondering how to manage and price that growing risk. But while some see managed retreat from vulnerable areas near forests along rivers and coasts as a more realistic solution, Alice Hill says it's something of a political football. Well, we will be in an area of retreat. Whether it's managed or chaotic uh, will be up to us. Uh, and you are absolutely right. The timeline of these things uh, is not favorable for pol political elected officials. <laughs> uh, someone who is looking at a re-election campaign, uh, first of all, probably may not want to invest money in resilience when he or she could build a community center. We find that those are more popular. Uh, there's an expression, N-I-M-T, not in my term. Uh, and we see that it's often those politicians with a much uh, deeper experience in the community and at the tail end of their careers who are willing to take on these uh, long-term risks. So that is a challenge up front. And then, of course, managed retreat has become uh, two dirty words. Uh, communities have fought back vigorously. Here in California, you have a number of examples, uh, including Del Mar, one of your most affluent uh, beach towns, which after the Coastal Commission and their uh, purview of looking at public access to the beach, told all coastal communities you need to at least have thought about managed retreat. Eventually, Del Mar said, we don't want to have any mention of managed retreat. And uh, you understand that property values are at stake. And so if your home falls into that area where you may have to pull back, uh, you might not want to have talk about it because that could uh, reduce your value. Unfortunately, the events are occurring so quickly and we're going to see storm surge uh, greater on the east coast more intense hurricanes on the west coast sea level rise causing erosion that even if people don't choose to retreat things are just going to fall into the sea <laughs> so uh if we want to keep building infrastructure to keep homes right next to the sea we're going to pour a lot of money into places that will wash away and so that's why it's desirable to think about a plan for how you're going to pull back and make sure that people are safe and that we don't waste money, which is really what's at stake if you think that you can keep the sea at bay on these kinds of coastlines that the United States enjoys. Janet Ruiz, uh, is the insurance industry happy to insure those mansions on the cliff and they're going to wash into the sea and just charge high rates or...? <laughs> Well, we have a lot of underwriting guidelines for uh, coastal risks, um, and so we will ensure the ones that adhere to those. Um, but even in any catastrophe, uh, one of the things that does happen quite a bit uh, that sometimes is viewed as a bad thing by maybe local leadership like you were talking about is that uh, people are able to take the money and they can move if they'd like to. So you don't have to rebuild on the property you were on. Uh, what happens is a, a good percentage of people do that, uh, but the local levels don't like it because then they're losing the tax base. So what we're seeing now is communities and government looking at these issues to try and decide what does make sense. and. Uh, in California, they've actually given some of the communities uh, money to infill that tax 
issues so that it's okay for people to move. And when it makes sense, it's, it's like you said, it's not managed retreat. They're retreating because they want to, but at least some of that is happening. When Jessica Sager moved into a new house in Austin, she had no idea the neighborhood had flooded many times over the years, most recently in 2013. In fact, it was on a 25-year floodplain, and the situation was so dire that the city of Austin bought out more than 50 local residents and demolished their houses. It's one of a series of buyouts Austin is conducting in flood-prone neighborhoods. The repeated destructive flooding, coupled with an exodus of residents, left an emotional hole in Sager's new community. Her idea was to reuse some of the newly vacant land to bring people back together. There was a lot of a sense of helplessness about the flooding itself, a sense of sadness about seeing the neighborhood slowly become demolished. And there was this one stretch uh, in particular just down from my house that I would pass literally every day. It was across the street from the Creekside, and it was a corner lot, this big open space, so that this beautiful mulberry tree and I every day would drive by that and just thought that is just a beautiful lot a beautiful space and I think it really needs a garden it was a lot of red tape and I am not exaggerating when I say that the process of it brought me to tears at different times but I stayed in communication and I just kept talking to people about it and we put in a 28 plot garden with a big community herb wheel Gardening together has helped build the community, too, in a way that it's not just people living in houses nearby, but it's people who then now talk to each other and gather and look out for each other and care. I got really moving feedback from neighbors about how meaningful it was to bring people together again and bring people together again on this land that had been part of the neighborhood and then sort of ripped out from them. That was Jessica Sager, who helped create the Heartwood Community Garden in Austin, mm -hmm. Texas. Alice Hill, there's two points that I want to pull out. One is the importance of connectedness in communities after uh, a tragedy or trauma. And number two, the buyouts of the government coming in and just buying land. Uh, is we going to see more of that? And where's the money going to come from? Well, you're absolutely right uh, on the first uh, issue of social connectedness. That is one of the uh, things that we know we know most makes communities resilient is social connectivity. This is really on display when you have extreme heat events, which we are experiencing already and we will experience more of. Uh, when you look at the excess deaths, the people who die as a result of uh, suffering through an extreme heat event, we know that those who are connected to their community are less, much less likely to die. It's the socially isolated uh, people living alone, the elderly uh, who uh, die, or those communities that don't have the kind of opportunity to share together, as we've just heard about. The question on the buyouts is going to be a very difficult one for the nation. Uh, right now, these buyouts are often largely funded through federal taxpayer dollars. And uh, they are done on a voluntary basis. So, for example, in New Jersey, uh, after Sandy, they had the Blue Acres problem. And when you uh, flew Acres uh, program, but it did turn into a problem. Uh, Chris Christie had promised that he was just going to take care of all that land, get rid of the homes that had flooded and, and open green space. Well, if you have a voluntary program, there are a lot of people who don't want to move. 
Uh, and that's understandable. There's emotional attachment to your house. Maybe you raised your family. You've been there forever. Uh, you hear people are going to, I'm going to go out feet first. Uh, and so they don't want to sell. So it, sometimes you can't get even that little open space. You just have a patchwork. And then the town still has to maintain the infrastructure. So that, if, if not everybody moves, that's a problem. Uh, and then we have simply the demand is too great. You know, before uh, Houston had four feet of rain dumped on it, they had a buyout program. But the waiting list, this is before Harvey hit, was 3,000 homes. And just, it took, it takes about five years, or at least that's what the studies, to get to a buyout of a home. And by that time, the home could be further damaged. And then if we're going to buy it out at pre-damage prices, that gets to be pretty expensive. Canada has an interesting program. They have a one and done. You get $250,000. You can decide to leave or not. But the next time your house floods, that's it. Hmm. And that's important for us here because we, a lot of our flood insurance is through the federal government. And that program is deep in the hole, over $20 billion having been replenished over and over again by the federal government. And we still insure homes in the floodplain that repeatedly flood, plus we're insuring new, new development in the floodplain. I'm talking about floodplains of 100 years, which is probably getting closer to one in 25 years. We're, we're still, as taxpayers, subsidizing that. So we have a lot of issues about how do we pull out of investment in development, and then how do we do this equitably so that uh, the people in Missouri aren't funding all the coasts that need to be bought out. And plus, we may need buyouts in wildland fire areas um, because some of those areas that have burned will burn again. We don't have a building code that makes sure they won't burn, the houses won't burn. We may have to also develop programs to get people out of those very high-risk areas. Janet Rees, aren't easy. Uh, Janet Rees, what are some tips for homeowners who are in wildfire risk areas? What are some basic things that people can do and should do uh, to to manage their risk? That's a great question. There are many things that people can do, and um, I'm pleased that now the all the industries are coming together to simplify the messaging and make it consistent. So, you know, there's home hardening, there's uh, land clearing. Um, we see the fire services doing more preventative work. Um, they have more money to do that now rather than just, you know, putting fires out. And we see programs like, say, Boulder, Colorado, put together the Wildfire Partners Program. Uh, it has the insurance industry, the realtors, the utilities, the uh, government leadership, all talking to each other to help people work as a community. And like uh, Alice mentioned, it is all about communities working together. Yes, I'm responsible for my home, and yes, I live in a firewise community, but I'm also responsible to work in my community uh, because if I'm the only home that's fire resistant, I have uh, less chance of surviving a wildfire. Um, so I think that those are the things that you can do, but really paying attention and working in your community, uh, the insurance industry, 
supports the Insurance Institute for Business and Home Safety, um, ibhs.org, and they have all the good tips on how embers travel and what you can do to prepare your home. So check in your community and see what's available. If you're just joining us, we're talking about resilience in the age of climate change with Alice Hill, co-author of the new book, Building a Resilient Tomorrow, How to Prepare for the Coming Climate Disruption. She's a former staffer on the National Security Council in the Obama administration. And Sherry Goodman, senior strategist at the Center for Climate and Security. And Janet Ruiz, communications director at the Insurance Information Institute. I'm Greg Dalton. Sherry Goodman, what's happening now in the military and the Trump administration where I think the word climate is, is you know, unofficially banned? And is there a kind of quiet under the radar work going on in these things or is it using different language? What's going on? Because the military in many ways, the Navy in particular, was leading for a while. What's happening now? Well, the, the military is still doing a lot to protect uh, both its bases, its infrastructure. It's rebuilding at Offutt. It's rebuilding at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida, which got severely damaged in Hurricane Michael last year. Uh, it's rebuilding at Camp Lejeune, which also got damaged in Hurricane Florence. Uh, and it's reassessing uh, how it operates. I mean, some of our bases overseas, like Diego Garcia, which is a critical facility uh, in the Indian Ocean from which we dispatch naval and air assets into the Middle East and other theaters of war today and every day, uh, could be underwater within the next decade or so. Uh, and we've learned the hard way that uh, in parts of the Pacific Islands where we placed at the Kwajalein um, Atoll in the Marshall Islands where we placed the space radar to track incoming missiles, uh, now that facility could also be underwater, a billion-dollar facility within the next decade, or could lose its wa its ability to support the humans that need to be there because its water supply will suffer from saltwater intrusion. So um, there's a lot of work going to understand those risks and reposition our forces to. You know, we found that in the last five years or so, we're actually having to deploy our military to support civilian and homeland security activities in the U.S., like those hurricanes I mentioned on the East Coast. Think of Hurricane Harvey and all the hurricanes that have hit Florida and Puerto Rico. They have taken military as backup to our first responders to the point that we had to slow the flow of our forces overseas. We used to think our military was primarily for the away game, but now they are backup for these first responder missions, whether it's wildfires floods or extreme events. I want to share with you, Greg and others, I think there are some models from the defense sector that can be useful as we think about how to build resilient societies in the future. And I go back to uh, the era I, I started in uh, 25 years ago that also affected California very much, which was the closing of military bases. We had a lot of excess military bases in that era. We still have them. It took a very some far-sighted leadership in the U.S. Congress uh, and others to create a law that got beyond some of the local politics it takes to to shut a military base or to change how we manage at the local level. And it was that far-sighted base closure law that enabled us to close some of that excess military infrastructure, which is now to the benefit of all the communities, including California and elsewhere. And we're going to need that far-sighted leadership at the national and the local level again. And then one other, I think, important example 
in Denver, Colorado, we had uh, we used to manufacture chemical munitions, uh, and we had a an, an explosive ordnance training center that today it was the former Rocky Mountain Arsenal. It today is the largest urban wildlife refuge in the country. It's the Rocky Mountain Wildlife Refuge. We converted a former chemical weapons facility into an urban wildlife refuge. And the story that we heard about the Austin repurposing of the homes to an urban garden struck me as very similar. We have done this at various times in our American history. We can do this again. We have to be creative uh, from the federal to the local level to think about how we repurpose our lands into other uses. And finally, on the wildfire front, I'd say that the military has long thought about how to do controlled burns on military lands because if you don't use, if you don't manage the wildfire, the ecosystem, many ecosystems, as Alice pointed out, on the East Coast, they burn regularly. And if we have a lot of training ranges in the south, in southeastern U.S. and also in the southwest that, and in the in the northwest that are at risk of burning. And the military has long used control burn techniques in in conjunction with conservation organizations to manage for healthy ecosystems that also allow for the training to continue. So we're going to need to step up our game on that, particularly at that urban wildland interface, and be able to to take away some of that the the fuel of the 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 fires the the lands that build up there in this excess heat era. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about ways to combat the fallout from climate disaster. Coming up, looking at climate change through the lens of gender inequality. Women often are the fetchers of water. They'll have to go further. They are more vulnerable. In an acute event, we see human rights violations, human trafficking, and often it's women and girls who are trafficked first. That's up next when Climate One continues. Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about climate resilience with my guest, Janet Ruiz of the Insurance Information Institute, Sherry Goodman of the Center for Climate and Security, and Alice Hill, Senior Director for Resilience Policy on the National Security Council during the Obama administration. One area that sometimes gets overlooked in the disaster preparedness conversation is the healthcare system. Alice Hill recalls how a lack of planning left hospitals in the dark during one catastrophic event. Well, when Sandy hit in 2012, we learned that if your electric grid fails, your healthcare system fails. And unless we plan for that, we will have uh, cascading events occur. And in Sandy, uh, Manhattan had not planned for about a foot of sea level rise that had been suffered or 
experience since uh, the turn of the century, uh, since 1900. And so they planned for a maximum storm surge of 12 feet. When Sandy hit at a full moon, high tide, it came in at 14 feet. It blew out the electric substation in Manhattan, the city that never sleeps, plunges into darkness. I remember vividly that hospitals being evacuated, like exactly. ambulances lined up and people being taken out of hospitals. It was quite chilling. So we, it turns out we'd put our generators in the basement. And if we hadn't put the generators in the basement, we'd put the fuel in the basement. So they had to hand carry fuel. We'd put our ICU units at the top of the building. So when we had no power, we're taking people down with handheld flashlights. So we evacuated about 6,500 people in Manhattan during the loss of power for 8 million people on the East Coast. But we also learned, and this was an aha moment, I think, collectively for the federal government, that much of our health care is now decentralized. So you have people getting uh, uh, care in a small shopping center. Maybe it's dialysis. Maybe it's something else. And those places were shut because everything's flooded. Nobody can get around. There's no fuel. Uh, and then you saw with the uh, preemptive power outages here, uh, as well as in Florida during some of our uh, hurricane events there, uh, no backup generator systems for heat for people in nursing care. We need to make sure that we are paying attention to how we can deliver health care, a very, very basic need uh, and consideration. If we can't deliver health care, we're really failing at the very critical time when people need us most. And there are great stories. Uh, the Texas Medical Center uh, suffered a terrible event with Tropical Allison. Uh, they have a two mile, square mile facility, some 50 hospitals within that area. They couldn't operate. And then they invested deeply in flood protection, uh, hardened themselves. When Harvey hit with four feet of rain, only one of their buildings shut down. They had personnel that kayaked in to be able to treat people, and they were able to continue to operate. That's the kind of thing we need across the United States and honestly across the world, because if we can't deliver health care, you really see a disintegration of the community sense uh, and social norms. I always think of the Cajun Navy. You know, there's a lot of pain in this thinking about these climate things. But every time the Cajun Navy, you know, rides and those people, those heroic, you see them pulling elderly people out of their homes, putting in their boat. And the, the Cajun Navy is uh, that's the, the bright side of uh, these things when people come together. Alice Hill, another thing that was really interesting in your book is you talk about gender inequality and how people in the Philippines and the Indonesia, there's a couple of studies about what happens to girls early in life, depending on when they're born. Tell us about gender inequality and climate resilience. Well, we know that uh, in many societies, uh, girls are the last uh, to eat uh, and given fewer resources. And this becomes particularly acute when you have these extreme events. And uh, they may, the girls may be fed during the extreme events, but in the subsequent years as uh, either uh, crops are disrupted or the fisheries are down or whatever has happened, the girls suffer. And so they um, are, suffer from stunting uh, and they just simply don't have uh, the same opportunities as before. With all of the climate change impacts, they will 
hit the most vulnerable hardest. They have the least means, uh, the, the fewest resources to deal with what's ahead. Uh, and that has to remain a focus as we go forward, a focus within our own nation, but also the nations that will suffer almost the most. It's, a, it's not like these impacts come in evenly. It's a geographic lottery. There are some places that will suffer a lot more and they all happen to be very poor areas in the world that ironically have had nothing to do with the carbon emissions that are causing all of this. But we need to pay attention to them. Uh, obviously, it's the right thing to do, and there'll be great suffering, and there are also national security reasons to make sure that we're helping these communities so that they can thrive at home uh, and are not subject to insurgents recruiting them, uh, terrorists recruiting them, which we have seen in certain areas as resources become constricted. So uh, we know there'll be gender inequality uh, in terms when resources are reduced. Uh, women often are the fetchers of water. They'll have to go further. Uh, They're more vulnerable. In an acute event, uh, we see human rights violations, human trafficking uh, occurs. People are, um, need help, and often it's women and girls who are trafficked first. Uh, so many issues for us to examine, and gender has to be one of the lens that we place on what we do about climate change. And I'll put on that also that educating girls, empowering women is one of the best levers for addressing climate change. So that's the, the positive side of the gender issue is keeping girls in school yes. and, and uh, family planning, that sort of thing is one of the best positive levers as well. We're going to go to uh, our audience questions, invite you to join us over there at the microphone with one one part comment or question. Welcome to Climate One. Uh, I'm John Kelly. Um, my question's for Alice and Sherry. I, th I think this building that we're in right now tonight is probably less than 10 feet above sea level. <laughs> and one of the facilities that, that is all over the country is municipal water facilities. I was wondering if the two of you could comment upon uh, the unique threats that uh, global warming poses to municipal water facilities and what communities should be doing to uh, increase resilience for those types, for those specific types of facilities. Well, uh, wastewater treatment and water treatment plants are uh, at great risk, John, uh, because uh, many of those are right at sea level. Uh, we saw with Sandy when we lost power, another aha, was that the wastewater treatment plants, because they couldn't pump and for variety of reasons, they just overflowed. And that went straight into the rivers, billions of gallons of untreated water, and that flooded into the streets of Manhattan, flooded their tunnels. Uh, very serious problem. And we uh, do not have solutions. A lot of these facilities were built a long time ago. One of our largest challenges that we have right now is that our infrastructure is not resilient. It's already graded at D plus or something by the American Society of Civil Engineers. And we do not have building standards that require it to be raised uh, at the moment. FEMA is trying to work with communities to get them to do a better job. You can find examples of recent uh, infrastructure across the United States, including wastewater treatment, uh, particularly uh, that is not resilient. And then when you get into the wildfires where we're storing a lot of water that's for drinking purposes and you get the landslides, these uh, areas are very vulnerable for uh, serious disruption as a result of cascading impacts. 
Sherry, Absolutely, good. we need to look at these issues. Sherry, any more optimism from your side? <laughs> <laughs> well, we have the same problem in Washington, D.C. of combined sewer overflow. We've had that even before the climate era in which we now live, and now it's worse, although there have been some investments to improve the infrastructure um, for water treatment here. I'd say the good news, you know, we can look around uh, the world. There are some countries, Israel, for example, is a country uh, that has always thought about water um, as an important strategic and national asset. And one of the ways it's done that, um, which we will never have, because we we decentralized management of water, but what Israel's done is they use a lot of recycled water, much more recycled water in their agricultural and other sector than we do in the United States. And we can reduce some of our water challenges as our lands become drier and more subject to drought by moving towards more recycled water for a greater variety of uses. Thank you. Next question. My name is Joan Earthy. You've given some fine examples, and I'm personally aware of fine examples of communities that prepare for extant disasters. My question to you is, get a kit, make a plan, be informed, is fatigued, it's flat. How do we do a better job of socially normalizing people like me and the people in this room at the individual level to be better prepared? Because in the end, it's they that are the ones that will be confronted. I'll, I'll start Reese. that. Um, I think one of the things that we're fortunate to have now that is making a difference is technology and things like apps. So if you use your smartphone, you know, I know all my kids, grandkids do, they are much more prone if it's on an app and it's simplified. Uh, so one of the programs we're working on at the Insurance Information Institute is a resilience program for all types of catastrophes. Uh, we're working with FEMA, IBHS, and several other partners to make it so that you, as an individual, can put your address in you can look at the risks so you wouldn't get the surprise like Alice did when she moved into the Hollywood Hills and find out, oh, my gosh, I just moved into a wildfire, flood, hurricane, you, you name it, area. Um, and then what are some things that you as an individual can do, you know, and how much would it cost? And are there grants available? And how do you get those? So, you know, while while you said that basic message falls flat, and you also rightly said because it can get overwhelming. So what we need is using technology for good, you know, things like an app, you know, information on the internet, but personalized so that you can decide and look at what is my risk? You know, how am I going to manage my particular risk? Because if you do it, then you can help the community. But if you're not doing it, you're not going to be working in the community. You've been listening to Climate One. We've been talking about communities working together to build resilience in the face of growing climate-fueled floods, fires, and other extreme events. I'm Greg Dalton, and my guests were Janet Ruiz, Strategic Communication Director for the Insurance Information Institute, Sherry Goodman, Senior Strategist at the Center for Climate and Security, and Alice Hill, Senior Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and co-author of Building a Resilient Tomorrow, How to Prepare for the Coming Climate Disruption. 
to hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. Please help us get people talking more about climate by giving us a rating or review. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Arnav Gupta, and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton. <laughs>